This message first aired on the radio on January 14th, 2004. Well, we continue in Romans 15 today, and we want to take up where we left off, and we're going down a little pathway here in order to understand this epistle well and to understand the context, the overall context of the scriptures well, especially these prophetic writings that we call the New Testament. And we found ourselves discussing, at the end of our last time together, the ministry of the apostle. And apostles, we discover in the scripture, are foundational elements of the work that God is doing during this present age. And we can even say that apostles are foundational elements in the church, which is his body. And in order to lay this out a little more clearly, and yesterday you may recall, uh, you missed it if you weren't with us, but you can listen to the archive broadcast on the internet, but you may recall that we took up the importance of signs and wonders and the miraculous gifts that God used to establish his apostles, and why it was so important that those miraculous gifts operated as testimony by God to the apostles, and how equally important it is today that they do not operate, and of course, they are not operating. But we look ahead a little bit. In order to get a better understanding of the book of Romans, we have advantages that the early Christian church did not have. We can look ahead to writings that had not been written and come back and see where doctrine is moving to. And one of the subjects very poorly taken up, I think, generally among Christians, at least that's my experience. Maybe I live in too small of a tunnel or something, or in a cave. But one of the subjects that's not taken up well is the progression of doctrine in the New Testament. Now, I don't say evolution of doctrine in the sense that we know more today than somebody knew yesterday, but the way the Bible is written shows a progressive doctrine and revelation though completed now and has been completed since the ministry of John was completed and the Bible was written, so it's been completed at least 1,900 years ago. There is no more to be added, but when we look in the Scripture itself, we see a progression of doctrine as it's being revealed to the Apostle. And especially we're caught up with, in the book of Romans, this idea of the progression of the doctrine of the mystery or the secrets that are disclosed to him concerning the church which is his body. If you haven't been with us throughout this study, we pointed out that the gospel of Jesus Christ was never hidden. It's still not hidden. It was never a secret. In all of human history, it's never been a secret, and we'll look more at that in a few minutes. But the mysteries or secrets that were given to Paul was the main thrust of what he was dealing with. And we saw one of those mysteries here in the book of Romans when we studied Romans chapter 9, 10, and then chapter 11 disclosed the mystery that we're not to be ignorant of. That was the secret of Israel's partial and temporary blindness. And we'll see a little bit about Israel here in the end of the 15th chapter. But that mystery, which is the church, which is his body, the grand mystery more or less fully disclosed in the book of Ephesians, is doctrine to which the book of Romans approaches or builds to. Now we're going to go ahead and look at a little bit so we can see where we're going, and I want to remind you that's a great advantage. We can see where doctrine is going. We can also look backward, and we can see where doctrine is coming from. So as Dickens said, these are the best of times, these are the worst of times, 
or it was the best of times, it was the worst times. In a sense, it's true. We live in the best and worst times. We live in the times when sinners flourish and where evil men and seducers wax worse and worse. We also live in the best time or the best age that God has given to understand the Scripture because we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ, as it says in the book of Ephesians. And from that perspective, we see all time and we see all of God's plan. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, we find out what God is doing with the establishment of the church, which is his body, and we see something about the importance and position of the apostles. And so we know that God has spiritually gifted believers. He's gifted us with the new nature. He's also gifted the church, which is his body. And he's gifted it in general, or let me say he's gifted it dispensationally, which means to say if you look at the church, which is his body, longitudinally across time as an entity, then dispensationally he gifted it at the very beginning in special ways. And he still gifts his local church functionally today, but he doesn't gift it with supernatural gifts. He gifts it with people. So let's look at this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So however Christ gifts each one of us in grace, he freely gifts us according to his own purpose and will in grace. Then verse 8, Wherefore he says, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now what gifts did Christ give? Well, he gave the supernatural gifts, but that is not the subject of Ephesians chapter 4. Those supernatural gifts that he gave, among them being gifts that were sign gifts and wonders testifying to the apostles, but he also gave gifts dispensationally, to the church which is his body. It says to us, verse 11 of Ephesians 4, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, reads my King James Bible, but these are not two different people. These are teaching shepherds, teaching shepherds for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ until we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man or a full-grown man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And, of course, this fullness of Christ is not the Lord himself. The fullness of Christ is the church, which is his body. And I don't care to take up all of that today. That's not our subject in Romans. It's not disclosed in Romans. But this is where we're headed to, is the full definition of the church which is his body and the place that each one plays in it, not just today, but dispensationally. At its founding, for example, we see that foundationally the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists were given to establish the foundation of the church. And once a foundation is done, you no longer build a foundation, but you build upon it. And if we'll just make that distinction when we read the life of the apostle, 
and we find out what is ascribed to him as being an apostle, and then what is ascribed to him as just being a servant of the Lord, we will follow his example as we're supposed to, as a servant of the Lord, and we will have none of the expectations, as we're not supposed to have, of being an apostle. So we'll be able to distinguish the things that differ, and we'll know what to expect, and also, importantly, what not to expect. Now we're in Romans 15, where we predicted, or where we said we'd be today, and we're going to see something that we ought not to expect about ourselves. Verse 18, here's the Apostle Paul, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Now he's the Apostle to the Gentiles. That was his work. And he completed that work. And so the Gentiles were opened up. The door was opened by Peter to the Gentiles. And the apostolic work to the Gentiles was completed by the Apostle Paul. And so the Gentiles don't need any apostolic work today. The Jews don't need any apostolic work today. I believe the Word of God still goes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But we do not have to rework any foundations And then there also, after one is saved, is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. More of that maybe some other time. But here he says, through mighty signs and wonders, it says here, what Christ has wrought by me, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, we talk about these signs and wonders. They follow the apostles. We talk about some of the deceit that's going on in the world today as if these miraculous things are happening, and they're not. Signs and wonders are not happening today at the hands of any Christian. We do not need signs and wonders. Indeed, it's important that we don't work signs and wonders because that is an apostolic work. And it is not that we have a decision whether we would do it or not. In fact, God is just not visiting. He is not visiting signs and wonders to authenticate apostles today. It's just not happening. Now, some people want to make up signs and wonders. And as I said yesterday, and I know some took maybe umbrage about it, that they're either deluded or crazy or lying. But if there's some other alternative, I'll, I'll certainly take it. Well... Here the apostle now goes on in verse 20, and he says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. This now references his specific ministry. He says, I have earnestly endeavored, I have strived, I have given my efforts to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, but where Christ had not been named, because I did not want to build on another man's foundation. Now, of course, we find in 1 Corinthians, no foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. Up against him is built the foundation of the apostle, the prophets, and evangelists. And what we have left today are teaching shepherds. Now, even today, there is not someone gifted miraculously or gifted specifically to be even the evangelist. In fact, we see from the scripture that this supernatural gifted person was not required 
late in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where he wrote to Timothy, and he told Timothy, he didn't say, be an evangelist. He didn't say, find an evangelist. He said, do the work of an evangelist. And every teaching shepherd needs to do the work of an evangelist. That is clear from Scripture, and that work will therefore be done. Now, let me come back here to verse 20 of Romans 15, and we'll inspect it a little further. The apostle is different than us because he did not want to build on another man's foundation. Now, how could he be an apostle and build on another man's foundation? He had enough trouble establishing his apostolic credentials against those who despised and hated him and those who, by the way, even got considerable sway inside the church at Jerusalem. Paul was despised. Paul was rejected even within the precincts of the Christian faith. And he was despised and rejected by those who, instead of following the ways of faith, would slip back into legalism. His apostolic office was, even if accepted, was often, apparently by the scripture, what we can see here, was often said to be inferior to the twelve. And the apostle had the unhappy task of having to persuade us in the scriptures that his apostolic authority was just as great as anyone else's and that he was not one single whit behind even those who were considered super apostles. Today, there is false teaching abroad. There is still the hatred of the Apostle Paul. And even within the precincts of so-called Christianity, and among Christians, there still is the teaching that the Apostle Paul, well, is just for Gentiles, but we Jews have a different way to go. Well, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, but he's the only one who brought in these mystery truths. He's the one that God assigned to bring in the full truth of the church, which is his body, where there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So he doesn't want to build on another foundation, and he doesn't want to preach where Christ had already been named. These are two of the same things. Where Christ has not been named, that's where foundational work needs to be done. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you won't hear very often, but no foundational work needs to be done anywhere that I can think of on earth. I can't find anywhere on earth where foundational work hasn't already been done and Christ already been preached. If that sounds strange to you, if that sounds mysterious to you, well then stick around past this next brief break that we're going to have and I'll go into it a little bit further and I'm going to show you some things in the scripture that are going to confront you with you either believe what is said there or you believe what you're hearing somewhere else today. We'll be back in just a minute. Please stay with us. For those of you who are new to our broadcast, we will let you know that through the grace of God and the help of our brothers, a cappella, they have allowed that music to be played on our show, on our broadcast, so that we can also broadcast it across the Internet without any legal problems. Also, Tim Reed of the Statler Brothers, allows us to play the gospel hymns of the Statler brothers on our program, and we want to just thank them publicly for that, and especially for their great fellowship in this age where it's very difficult, by the way, to freely play Christian music, both on the radio and on the Internet, without paying people for it or otherwise getting yourself in some kind of sticky legal mess. So we are grateful to them. 
Well, we're looking here at the Apostle, and the Apostle has said that he doesn't want to build upon another man's foundation and that he doesn't want to preach where Christ has already been named. Now, my friend, if you want to follow that example, you have to leave the world because this gospel has been preached already throughout the whole world. The gospel of Jesus Christ has gone through the whole world, and Colossians chapter 1 tells us that that this gospel, which you heard, was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. That's at Colossians 1 and verse 23. So we cannot go where the apostle went here. God has seen to it that we do not live in that age. And God has seen to it that we do not have that work. But the apostolic work, which, as verse 19 said, was visited by the power of the Spirit of God through mighty signs and wonders, was to establish a foundation, in the case of the Apostle Paul, where Christ had not been preached, Christ was not named, and where nobody had laid a foundation yet. Now, we come into this thing where others have labored, and we receive from them great benefits. And we receive also from their work great truth. And so we enter in where others have labored. And we don't do the same work. We don't go, we're workmen at the upper part of the structure dispensationally. So today, those who want to lay new foundations and those who believe that they're doing brand new things that have never been done, oftentimes, in their mistaken view, end up becoming divisive in the Christian faith. An old preacher told me, don't start anything. One thing you don't want to do is start up a new church. Now, I wondered why he told me that, because he didn't really give me the reasoning for that, uh, and he didn't tell me very many things. He didn't give me a lot of advice in that kind of way. He taught the scriptures, but didn't give me a lot of advice in that way. But one thing he told me, don't ever start anything. You don't need to. We have enough churches. A very interesting proposition, wouldn't you say? And, of course, it was contrary to the kind of mind that I had as a young man at the time. I think I was maybe less than 30 years old, about 30, 29 or 30, and God had just made it clear to me that I was a preacher and that he had given me a course in the Scripture. Well, I followed that advice and never started anything, and, of course, God brought me to a local church where I could function, and I'm still in that local church, Miller Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska, which is the sponsor of BibleStudy.net. Now, you may say that's not possible. You have to start a new thing. People don't get along. You pray God will do whatever it takes to do to bring about a ministry in a local church. Does this mean I say you never leave a church? No, I don't say that. Not everything that's called a church is a church. But here's one thing we don't need to do, especially in America, but really a lot of places or any place. We don't really need to start new things. Well, we don't need to lay foundations, and we don't need to believe that we're preaching Christ where it's never been preached. Now, that doesn't mean I think you should never start a church. I was told not to start any churches here in America. Now, I've traveled overseas, and I've been for 11 years very active in the nation of Kenya. And because I've done business in Kenya, I set up a very large training operation as a joint venture with the largest technical university in Kenya. 
and a smashing success, by the way, with 2,500 students in attendance at a time and many thousand graduates now, both diploma students and degree students. But in the course of doing that work and setting up a computer business and so forth, I also spent my time going about preaching as I was welcome and as I could. And in the course of doing that, there were times where I would visit places that rarely saw a white man. I don't say never, but rarely. I remember one place where my son was the second white man in history to spend the night in the village. And I traveled to other villages where, as an American, as a Mzungu, I was a spectacle. And that was interesting enough. Drew a crowd. And in one particular village... I preached the gospel and taught the scriptures where many came out of the Anglican Church, which was the National Church of Kenya. Not that it's a state church, but it is the official National Church of Kenya being inherited from the British Empire. They came out of the Anglican Church because in that particular location they were not free to practice their faith. They were not free to be baptized. They were not free to study the scriptures together. And they were actually being persecuted by the Anglican priest in their village. And so we did begin a church in the home of one of the leaders there. But let me just say, I don't, I don't want to go on about my experience. I'm teaching the scripture here. Let me say that in that case, there was nowhere that the Christians could gather together and function as the church which is his body. But in America, we've had such freedom and we have such a rich history of Christianity that maybe there are some small towns and small cities where there is no legitimate local church. But by and large, there are plenty of legitimate local churches that have major problems. And and my advice is to function in them. But coming back to Romans 15, verse 20, we do not lay any foundations. The foundations have been laid. And I hearken back to my experience in Africa. Let me tell you, I may have been one of the few white men to visit places, but the people spoke English fluently. They knew the gospel. Many were saved. And there were even preachers in the areas. So the gospel, in fact, the gospel went to North Africa, not far from East Africa, way before it ever came to America. So let's not think that we need to get the gospel to the whole world to bring poor Jesus back. That doesn't need to happen. The Lord has his timing. The gospel has already gone out to the whole world. Let's not think that we need to lay foundations. And especially where Christ is being preached, it can become divisive and even schismatic to lay foundations. And we know that there are very many men trying to draw followings after themselves and raise funds and build big organizations for their own feeding that they may feed upon them. And we don't need that in the Christian faith. In fact, we're warned against it in the Bible. So let's not try to be the Apostle Paul. Let's follow his faith, and let's not try to follow his apostleship, except let's let him be our apostle, and let's let the others be our apostles. Now, we look at verse 22 in Romans 15. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. He said, I had apostolic work to do. I had to lay foundations here and there. I had to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named. And I've been hindered from coming to you. This harkens back to the first chapter of Romans where he said that he would not have us ignorant that he really wanted to get to Rome. And we talked about that of why it was so important to him to get to Rome and why Rome meant so much to him. 
And you can listen to that again on the archive broadcast, if you'd like, back in Romans chapter 1. But here he had said he'd been hindered from coming to them. He wanted to, he was hindered. Hindrances are the enemy's device and also part of God's plan. They're both. And, of course, the enemy's devices are incorporated right into God's plan. We learned that at the crucifixion, didn't we? And when the enemies of Christ were gathered together to do whatsoever God had planned for them to do. But here we see that he was hindered. And hindrances are such a part of the life of the preacher. They're the life of the apostle. The hindrances are part of the life of the Christian worker. Hindrances are especially part of the ministry. I know from correspondence and discussions that this broadcast seems to attract a number of preaching brothers. And my friend, let's realize our hindrances are part of God's plan for us. And God is concerned with us. We can pray over our hindrances. We can try to pray through the hindrances. It can be spiritual warfare. But it can also be God's painful arrangements in our lives so that he can direct our paths. And I don't say that we give up with hindrances, but we should be patient with them, as the apostle was also patient. But now he says in verse 23, But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, Now, what parts was he in? Well, we believe he's writing this from Corinth. So he's in Corinth, and he wants to go to Rome. And, of course, finally the apostle will get to Rome. He won't get to Rome in the way that he thinks. He won't get to Rome in the way that the other believers approve of. But he'll get to Rome finally, and he'll be a prisoner there. But he'll have liberty to minister, and that's at the end of the book of Acts. Well, here he's writing this probably from Corinth, and he's finished there, and he wants to come to you. So he says in verse 24, Whenever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. So he wanted to go up north into Spain. Of course, he's going to go by sea that way, and he's, he believes he's going to come through, probably through Gibraltar that way. So he can stop off in Rome and see them. That's his plan. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with you. And of course, here now we see his great affections. And he says, I desire to come to you. He's taking up this great purpose he has that he needs to get to Rome. And of course, when he comes into prison, in the book of Acts, you can read this. When he is put in prison, the Lord visits him in prison and comforts him because he has heard that he's going to be in bonds if he goes to Jerusalem. And there are those who criticize that he shouldn't ever have appealed to Caesar so that he went to Rome. But when he was in prison, the Lord Jesus Christ came to him and told him that he would be a witness in Rome. So he's finally going to satisfy this desire that builds up in him. And let me also talk about building up desires that are in you. Sometimes God begins to work desires for us to go somewhere or to do something. And then he puts hindrances in place to actually do it. This, I believe, God does at times so that we can discover for ourselves whether those desires are enduring or not. Sometime a desire comes up, maybe it's a bad meal you had or some kind of impulse that you have, and it goes away. I tell people, if you can get over it, get over it. 
if it sticks with you, if your desire won't go away, if you can't seem to shake it out of your mind, you've been very patient and there are hindrances in the way, well, those hindrances are still to test you. When the hindrances are gone, then you'll have great liberty and you'll have great freedom inside yourself to go do that very thing. So here's the apostle now wanting to go to Rome, but he says, but now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. And of course, Paul in Jerusalem, that's going to be a trouble. That's going to be a problem. And he explains why he's going to go to Jerusalem. It says, verse 26, it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now, when he's writing this, if he's writing this from Corinth, which we think he is, then here they've purposed to make this contribution. But if you'll read 1 Corinthians, which is what we're going to study following the book of Romans, we're going to see that though they purposed to do it, they didn't really do it. And so he goes from Corinth to Ephesus. He's going to get chased out of Ephesus. But while he's at Ephesus, he writes back to Corinth and he says, hey, you purpose to make a contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now let's talk about this contribution what it is and what it isn't. First of all, it pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia is the region, those of the region of Macedonia and the region of Achaia, to make a contribution for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Now, it pleased them. This was a voluntary thing on their part. They decided that they needed to help the believers who were in great distress in Jerusalem. And these are the Jewish believers who are being persecuted by the Jews, persecuted by the Romans, persecuted even by Christians in some ways, which we'll look at if we study the book of Acts together. But here it says, a certain contribution for the poor. But this word translated contribution in the King James Version is the word koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. Now let me say that we can't have fellowship unless we're together except that we can deliver something to one another by means of the use of our resources. For those of you, for example, who are listening to this broadcast outside the Omaha area, all around here and in between, we can't have fellowship together except that I can bring my voice across these radio waves through the extension of resources to reach you. So this is fellowship, and God has allowed us to use our resources for fellowship. And that's what it's about. And this is a healthy subject of Scripture that we want to take up a little bit, and we'll do it when we come back from this brief break. Well, we're talking about the fellowship that those of Macedonian Achaia wanted to have with the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. And here it says in verse 27, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. So here we found an occasion where there was a massive relief effort required, really, from a Christian point of view, a massive relief effort required for the poor saints at Jerusalem, which were bereft of, really, a living. And the apostle took it upon himself to be the emissary, or to be the one who facilitated this fellowship between the Gentiles and the Jews at Jerusalem, and the Gentile churches that he had founded, and ministered at. And of course, this is a marvelous thing in the context of the New Testament, as here God arranged to facilitate the fellowship between Jew and Gentile for what he was trying to do. And what is God going to do? Why, he's going to eliminate the distinction 
between Jew and Gentile. And in the marvelous providence of God, he impoverished the Jews that had believed in order for the Gentiles to minister to their needs and to build a fellowship between. Isn't it wonderful to see the divine plan that it overreaches all the circumstances of life which we find so distasteful. And by the way, I don't call these circumstances somehow tasteful. They are distasteful. But here's an example of how God can cause all things to work together for the good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Now we also see a principle here that he inserts in verse 27, and elsewhere in the scripture he lays it out much more detailed and much more clearly, but it says this, For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, that is, of the Jews' spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. So the fact is, if you benefit spiritually from someone, it is your responsibility to minister back to that someone in a way that you can. And here the Gentiles found an occasion, they found an opportunity to minister back something of the great debt they had to the Jews who brought the gospel to them. Well, we won't go on any further about that. It's not a main subject in this epistle, but there it is. Now, verse 28, When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And notice that the apostle calls that the fruit of the gospel, this furtherance of fellowship between churches. Churches ought to have fellowship with each other, but they ought not rule each other. I don't really like the term sister church. Maybe we should call it a brother church. But churches ought to be able to have fellowship one with another in the gospel. Now, unhappily, instead of the fellowship between churches or amongst churches that we see in the New Testament, today the churches have taken a worldly form, a corporate form, and we find churches having subsidiaries or subsidiary churches, which, by the way, they themselves start, and this is not what God is doing. It is not what God is doing. But fellowship amongst churches, that is something that God will do and does do. And the exchange of resources, really, in the age of that the Bible's written here, the exchange of resources is the only way those churches can have fellowship. Today, we have great privileges. We can travel. Brothers can travel between churches, among churches. There are other opportunities for churches to have fellowships with each other, why they can even find a place to gather together, at least in part, and enjoy one another's company. But when you can't go there, and you can't speak to them, you can't have the scriptures together in that kind of fellowship, well, then you can have resources sent one way and another. Well, here he says now, I'm sure when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Verse 30 through 33. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now, the apostle needed the prayers of the saints. It's interesting that he did. Here's a man supernaturally gifted by God. Signs and wonders follow him. The fear of the Lord is upon those who meet him and hear him. He's mighty in the scriptures, and he was the one ministering to these people and yet he needed them to co-labor with him, especially in prayer. And friends, if there's one thing a preacher needs, and I'm a preacher, if there's one thing a preacher needs, he needs people praying 
for him. I don't need anything else. God has supplied all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, and I have no needs except I do need for those like-minded to pray for me. And I have needs, by the way, and so does every preacher, and so does every Christian engaged in the spiritual war that God has given us to fight. Every Christian needs others to pray for him. You can put on your own armor, but no man lives to himself, no man dies to himself, and no man fights alone. And friends, here's another way that we can have fellowship one with another. I may never meet you, I may never see you, but you can pray for me, and I can pray for you. But here in prayer, of course, prayer is intended for those whom we know. I mean, we can remember to the Lord those who are persecuted throughout the whole world, but God sees to it specifically that you know someone who is persecuted. He brings the news to you, or you discover about someone. Well, here the apostle now tells them why he needs them to pray for him. And it's not that he would have a good time or, or so forth, but here it was a very serious matter, verse 31, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. He says, look, I'm going toward Jerusalem. I need to take this gift, and I need to be delivered from those who don't believe because they are going to kill me. And, of course, they do want to kill him. The Apostle Paul was a hounded man. And the enemy of the faith is a specifically, especially, the enemy of the preacher. He's specifically, especially, the enemy of the preacher. Now, he's the enemy of all of us, but he focuses his attack on the preacher of the word of God. And here now, they would kill him, except God didn't allow. And the apostle was a hounded person. He was chased around and hounded by those who hated him every single place he went. That was part and parcel of the great revelation that was given to him. In fact, we learn that the apostle Paul had a messenger from Satan given to him to buffet him or to beat him up. People wonder about what was the thorn in Paul's flesh. Some said there's the evidence that he was married. Ha ha. But the thorn in his flesh is not something we need to guess about. Some say it's his eye disease. I don't know what they're talking about. He says what the thorn in his flesh is, a messenger from Satan to beat him up. And so here was a wicked spirit specifically attached, called a messenger, Mephistopheles, a messenger from Satan, specifically dispatched to hang around the Apostle Paul. And, of course, what does a messenger do? Well, he gives a message. And what was the message? Well, however wicked spirits deliver those messages into the minds of wicked men, the message came out this way, beat this guy up. And everywhere the apostle went, there were those who would beat him up and kill him, except God didn't allow. And he was in the hands of the saints to protect him, and he was in the prayers of the saints to protect him. Every day has enough evil in it. Every single day has enough evil. BibleStudy.net comes to you every evil day. Now, there's enough evil today that there needs to be prayer for the preacher. Now, whether it's me or the others who are ministering the Word of God to you, doesn't matter. The preacher of the Word of God needs prayer from the enemies, the spiritual enemies, 
that are all around us. And friends, though we walk by faith, not by sight, we cannot see our spiritual enemies. They are not flesh and blood. We can't see them, but with the eyes of our understanding, we know that we're engaged in a spiritual war, and the apostle asked for prayer. Now he says, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now this is, by the way, what a gathering of Christians is supposed to be about. Unfortunately, by the means of men, and because we don't follow the scriptures, our gatherings together have become onerous, haven't they? Now, come on, you don't like to go to church. Generally speaking, people do not like to meet in their meetings with other Christians. Why is that? Because the meetings of Christians have been made onerous by what we think are the arrangements that we have to make. Well, here the meetings of the Christians are supposed to be a refreshment. Well, what do you need to be refreshed from? You need to be refreshed from the wicked, evil world that we live in all day, every day. And as we see the Lord coming soon, and we do see the Lord coming soon, as we see that becomes more and more clear, Christians are supposed to be gathering together more and more often. But what do we actually see in the age that we live that they're not being refreshed when they come together, that they're coming together for the worse instead of the better, and they come together and fight, and they come together and get preyed upon, and they don't get refreshed, they get taken, they don't get ministered to, they come into the church gathering and say, God wants this from you, God wants that from you. But when you come into the house of God, my friends, it's like going to the house of your own father. He doesn't want anything from you, he wants you to be there, and he gives to you. And the churches of God should be those gatherings where the believers are refreshed from the woes and from the buffetings and from the pains of this world that's in enmity against every child of God, whether that child of God knows it or not. Well, he closes this now. He said, now the God of peace be with you all. That closes up our study for today. Tomorrow we'll be in the book of Romans, chapter 16. And tomorrow, by the way, we'll finish the book of Romans, we think. If we don't finish it tomorrow, well, we'll finish it the next day. And our next study is going to be the book of 1 Corinthians. So between now and next week, give yourself a chance to read that book because you're going to like the Bible a whole lot better if you read it. Well, may God bless you until we come together again.